When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we're going to feature an interview and soul analysis on Mr. Dick Gutman. He's a legendary Hollywood press agent. He's been behind the scenes making stars for so many years. Some of the biggest stars in the world today have come as a direct result of being represented by Mr. Dick Gutman. He's got so many lessons to teach. He wrote a book called Star Flacker, which is incredible. really talks about the way old school Hollywood worked. And I can't tell you how incredible it is that we were able to get an interview with him. So, the Outer Limits of Intertooth Radio Show proudly presents an interview and soul analysis on Mr. Dick Gutman. Joining us now is a living legend, Mr. Dick Gutman, legendary Hollywood publicist and author of the critically acclaimed book, Star Flacker, Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. Mr. Gutman, it is a great honor to have you with us. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you. The toughest thing is li- living up to one's publicity. How am I going to <laughs> possibly merit what you just said? But I'm I'm always happy to talk about the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, we made movies of that last forever, forever. I mean, you, well, you can see any one of these films over and over again and get something new each time, and they're wonderful. If you were to talk about, of all the decades in Hollywood, where do you think, what decade brought forth the uh, the most memorable type films and why? Well, I, I mean, there were, there were great silent motion pictures made. There's no question about that. But I think when we say the golden age, we're probably talking about about the mid-30s, although there were great films made earlier in, in the 30s. But I think it's the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Right up through the 80s, you know, they, they were making wonderful films. Uh, 90s, by the 90s, you started to get years in which there would be, you know, three or four films of real merit, and the rest of them would be fairly commercial, which is pretty much what right now, you know, Hollywood is making comic books and electronic games. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sad, because they're wasting a lot of really talent, really good talent. But I'd say... The really great the great periods for me were 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Do you feel that during that era you just described that these films were made on artistic merits and it was a – they coincidentally happened to have made money or happened to have been critically acclaimed, whereas today it seems that these films are made – with the intention of making money, and if they are critically acclaimed, then that's just a byproduct, and that's just you know a hidden surprise. But their main goal is money-driven. Well, you know, I don't think that the filmmakers, I mean, there's still some 
some wonderful directors and filmmakers out there. And I think they go into each one thinking that they can make something that has, uh, you know, true relevance to the lives of the people. Uh, we did this past year, one of the Oscar campaigns I touched. I, I don't oversee Oscar campaigns anymore. Um, it was a spotlight. And I was really thrilled when it won because I thought it had a lot to say. I think it accomplished a lot. And it was a, an actor-driven film that that was just overwhelming in its, in its artistry. And everybody was very passionate about it. But, uh, you know... It depends on it depends on the filmmakers. the 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 great The great period of film was really when there was the studio contract system, because those studio moguls that everybody hated, <laughs> with good reason in most cases, wanted to make good movies, and they actually knew how to good, make good movies, and they knew how to find directors. They, they I started to make a list of the directors who were really contributive to that period. And I stopped at 60. There must have been well over 100 really fine directors, not just the Tapper and Wilder and Wilder and Lubitsch and Stevens and uh, uh, Zinnemann. There were maybe 150 directors, each of whom could turn out great movies. And uh, the, the cat people, Jacques Tourneau, well, he's not looked at as Billy Wilder or... Uh, or John Ford, but they all made their contributions. And and actors had the chance every time they went out to be making a great film for a great filmmaker. Wow. And you were widely seen in PR as, a, as an innovator, and you've gotten... Uh, can you please describe what you would say would be some of your, um, your most original um, theories or practices that have had a substantial impact on the world of PR, well, especially when it comes to Hollywood? I don't know if it's had an impact on the world of PR. I, I know it's affected the people who work for me because everybody who's worked for me has gone on to be pretty good. I mean, they were good to begin with. I gave them a good grounding in rules because I, I somehow my – I'm dyslexic, so I'm not – my mind doesn't always organize well. So when I hear a rule, I make a point of remembering it. And I remember once um, – Kirk Douglas, we were handling Kirk Douglas, and uh, he was in a, um, a film with John Wayne called Water Wagon, and um, I was working for another company called Rogers and Con. Warren Cowan invented my business. I, a lot of my the rules I learned from him, but um, this time he was in a quandary. We pick up the paper, Luella Parsons, one of the most powerful columnists in entertainment, who really did rule Hollywood? They, you know, people danced to what they said and to their prejudices. And she has this terrible story about something that John Wayne had said about Kirk Douglas. Oh, we're really distressed. Warren comes, uh, Kirk, Kirk, we're going to be right up there. There's a story in today. We want to go over it. We have an idea, which we didn't. And so we go up to Kirk's house, and Warren hands him this this clip, and he says, um, "I'll tell you what we want to do. We still don't have it." Uh, and Kirk looks at it. He says, "What? Uh, what we're going to do?" He says, "Now hold on a second. Picks up the phone, dials. He says, "Is Duke there? It's Kirk. Duke, it's Kirk. Oh no, no, don't worry about it. Uh, she knew that it was uh, bull when she wrote it. Uh, uh, you know, let's have some fun here. I'm going to call and I'll say that dirty right wing son of a gun." 
he can take this thing and stuff it, and and then we'll have a feud, and we'll get some publicity, and who knows what a Western's going to do today. We'll kick it off. He hangs up the phone, and he turns <laughs> to me, and he says, a feud is great only if you control both sides of it. What a lesson to learn in publicity or in anything. It was pretty amazing. He had the idea, what, and I've used that a hundred times. So you have utilized it where you've built things up in the media where you've controlled both sides going back and forth in order to enhance a client's yeah. profile or enhance a movie? Yeah, because I mean, another one of my rules is that a, a question mark is a hundred times more imperative than an exclamation mark. If you, Tony Curtis, I, I, he was doing a film called Terrace Bulba. There's a 16-year-old German girl in the film. She became my client, too, because my wife is German. I handled all the European stars of the 60s. And so um, uh, Christine has become a client. I didn't know that she was having a relationship with with Tony. And so suddenly, one day I'm driving down the street, there's a big headline. The Herald Examiner used to have uh, all the, the sensational headlines, and it said, Curtis to marry 16-year-old actress, question mark. I'm telling you, that headline was five inches high. And um, I'm distressed about it, but um, I find out, <laughs> to my surprise, that this is absolutely true. So a couple of weeks later, they get married. The story was on page eight. It was four inches, one column, and the headline was, Curtis Mary, 16-year-old actress. It was the exact same headline as the one that was on the top of the paper, but it didn't have a question mark. And so what, and I, made what I learned is that a mystery has, or a problem, has energy. People are immediately attracted to it. If you, Once you just state it and you put a period at the end, that's a fact. You're not interested. It's over. And so I've used, so, I've used that a, a hundred times. So you're saying that even if somebody is sending something out to the uh, to the media or even uh, the local community newspaper, and they have a question mark on top of it, that is going to pique their interest because it is an unsolved uh, equation. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't I can't talk about things that I'm doing now because you know people pay me to be confidential. But there's one thing we're working on. It was. A fairly interesting story, but just wasn't evolved enough to be news. Let's take it out and put a question mark on it. Is somebody going to do something? And immediately it was a very big story. And it accomplished the same awareness that I wished to have and which I could have accomplished with the with an announcement, but I didn't have the announcement ready. So what I've done is I've created an awareness of this, and so when the announcement comes, it will be... Very interesting. I mean, yesterday was a really interesting example. For four years now, everybody's been um, wondering, is Barbara Streisand going to uh, do do uh, Gypsy? And uh, last year there was a story Universal wasn't doing it. Well, yesterday the story came out that she was. It was gigantic because people had been teased by this for so long. There was nothing that I or anybody else, that was just the way it, it played out. But, uh, you know, there, there there are millions and millions and millions of people there that are really happy that they're going to live to see Barbara Streisand do Mama Rose. That's pretty interesting. And 
Do you feel that in earlier years that the audience had a reasonable expectation of what to expect in their stars in terms of their looks, in terms of their performance? But as of today, with all the computer graphics and this in obsession with style, maybe over substance, that the audience has an unrealistic expectation of what to expect in celebrities and is that in some way, shape, or form driving celebrities to have shorter careers and even driving them to have higher stress levels because they cannot attain this perfectionist type stature that the public expects from them that their publicists expect them to be? You know, there were about 15 theses that you gave in that statement, and they're all right. <laughs> they're all absolutely correct. <laughs> the I think it's true that in the in the old days, you expected Cary Grant to be charming or Rapscallion. That was fine, but he was you expected him to be charming. You expected Gregory Peck to be upstanding. You know, who who, who else could have played Atticus Finch? And uh, you expected Gary Cooper was... Mount Rushmore. He was the guy who was in the, was America, you know. Sergeant York, Lou Gehrig, uh, uh, High Noon. He was the guy who who would stand up and do the right thing, and you believe that. And, and, and in a large way, he wasn't. I mean, he was a human being too, and uh, and but but he represented so perfectly how we saw ourselves, and we formed our national. Person, personality, according to the values that we attach to each people. I mean, I handled Van Johnson's so long. In the 40s, Van was the boy next door. He was the young American. He was innocent. He was ready to help anybody. He was adorable. And that represented everybody wanted their son to be Van Johnson. And there was a hope that their daughter's boyfriend was going to be Paul Newman. And it shaped who we were, and it shaped our shaped our sense of possibility. You know, it, it made us feel that everything was possible. And today, you don't do that. You see, you see a great actor like Robert Downey, and he's mostly Iron Man. And what does that tell us about who we are? He could be informing us. Of, of you know things that we can aspire to, that's what these people did. And it's not, do you it, feel, it doesn't happen now. Sorry. So, do you what kind of role model? If people are going to follow the Hollywood role models that are set up for them right now, what is the trajectory of you know of, of humanity? It seems like years ago there were some people that were on that screen that had strong qualities that were responsible that had some kind of moral yeah. compass. Do you feel that those qualities have been diminished or been completely yeah. gutted out? So we say, the kind of film they're happening, but it, you know, there's a lot of villains in this. The public is one of the villains, and the media is one of the villains, and Hollywood's greed is one, certainly one of the villains. The, the sad thing is, I, I make people angry when I say this, but I think the problem started with Star Wars, which is not to say that Star Wars wasn't a great movie. It was, you know fully realized narration and it had expanded our expectations of what motion pictures could be. But it also expanded the possibility that Hollywood, rather than because movies became so expensive 
And when I was a kid, if they said a million dollar movie, whoa, that must be some movie. <laughs> now it's uh, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions. And so the studio could put out a Superman versus uh, Batman and um, with the expectation that they're going to be able to make that same movie eight more times. And it was the same kind of big payoff. And so, of course, they're not looking how to make Diner or, or uh, Rain Man. It, those were those were films of another era. I think both those films were probably in, in the 80s, maybe the 70s. And that's what we look for. We look for films that told us great stories and introduced us to interesting characters. But now, you know, is it, what, what's going to blow up? I I actually watched one of the Iron Men, and I I thought it was was fine. But then suddenly, for no reason, there's this ray machine gets and it's destroying the whole laboratory. It had nothing to do with the story. It was just a chance to do more destruction, and it really made me sad. And people do Gee. that. And in a, in a way, I was surf tied in order because I handled everything about Superman. We handled Dick Donner, who directed it. He brought us Christopher Reeve, who became my client for a very long time, and Mike, and really a close friend. And we handled Marco Kidder, who was uh, Lois Lane, and uh, I brought Gene Hackman into it. Gene didn't want to do um, uh, what is the character, the villain that he played, and uh, Lex Luger. Yeah, Lex Luger. He didn't want to do it, and so I knew that he would love Dick. Dick Donner is a big teddy bear, and so. I had Gene wanted to meet uh, this woman who had become the first. He was very into racing, and I arranged for him to meet the woman who was the first woman to race at uh, Indianapolis. So I said, do it in my office here, and I had Dick come in for something else. And when it was over, Dick knew what I was doing. I put the two of them together. I knew that Gene would love them. And uh, by the end of the their conversation, Gene was going to do Lex Luthor. But, uh, but that film... It was a very that was a comedy, you know. It was really it was fun. These films, the few that I've seen, don't seem fun to me. I mean, they they defy any sense of reality, and but you know people are but it's it's changed the audience. There's different kinds of people watching these movies. I remember when, I, when I was a kid, I'd go to movies with my mom. You, you don't remember, but I'm sure you know the film. And Mrs. Miniver was a film that, at the beginning of World War II, made us want to help England. We didn't think that we were going to be invaded by Hitler, how wrong we were. But uh, but England was, and that was their problem, 1939. By the time some of these films came out that were really sort of tying us into, you know, we have a, we have a common sense of democracy, we have to help them. Mrs. Miniver came out and it showed the courage of this one English woman, and in effect it showed the courage of the whole English population. And it was, it changed the course of history because we suddenly we were there. And my, For my mom, Greer Garson in that role was what Hollywood movies was about. So one day, I'm, and I came a, came a time when I was representing Greer, and so I was driving my mom someplace, and I said, you know, I have to drop something off at a client's house. Do you mind if I just – I'm just going to go up this canyon for a second. And sure, of course. And uh, go, and I knock on the door. 
And the Greer comes out, oh, Dick, how great you're here. Come on in. Let's talk. I said, Greer, my mom's in the car. And so my mom is sitting there, and there's a tap at the window. And Mrs. Miniver is inviting her in for tea. It made up for all the terrible things I did for my, to my mom. <laughs> you know, we all exasperate them terribly. That made up for everything. Well, Mr. Goldman, I want to point out something Wait, that you had Dick. said. Dick, oh, sorry. Dick, you want, I wanted to point out something that you had said when you were talking about Iron Man, some of these films that just didn't make sense to you, didn't understand why. And I'm curious to know, do you find that films are a reflection of the collective consciousness or thinking level of the populace at large? And if so... Do you find that some of the films that were made in the early 40s and 30s were catered towards audiences that were much more aware of their external reality? They weren't living in some kind of fantasy world, but they were aware of what was happening. Yeah. They were, you know, had certain moral qualities, moral boundaries, and they were more into critical thinking. I'm kind of curious to know how you would see well, those. Yeah, uh, you're very right in that, in, in, in both of those assumptions. But I think it's because... You know, everything in this world is a guessing game. When I'm a press agent, I'm guessing that somebody's going to find this story newsworthy. It's a guessing game. I, I think I know the media. Uh, the same way Hollywood always thinks it knows what its audience wants. Not, not guesses, actually, because they're looking, how did they respond to this film or to that film? And it, truly, in the 40s, 30s, and 40s, they knew that they were reaching a... We, you know, we were we, we were not as gifted or cursed with all this media that we have now. We we live very insular lives, and and they were personal. We cared about personal relationships because it's all we had. But we didn't have Disneyland yet, and uh, and so Sam Goldwyn guessed that in 1946. People would be interested in the plight of soldiers returning home. How did they adjust? So we made a movie called The Best Years of Our Lives, one of the greatest movies ever made, one of the most human movies ever made. And and so people like Frederick March and, and Dana Andrews and Myrna Loy, you know, gifted, gifted actors and wonderful personalities, could sink into these roles and and embrace the humanity of that. That's what that's what that time had. And now the studios are guessing that the audience wants to be taken as far out of possibility of reality as possible. And none of these films have you know, now you're even getting one set of superhero values finding another set of super superhero values. And and they're guessing the wrong way. And so and, and in doing that, they're shaping the society, when Sam Goldwyn guessed that people wanted to see the vestiges of our lives, he helped make people interested in that. Maybe people who weren't aware of the fact that these kids were coming back and, you know, we didn't even know about post-traumatic syndrome. They were, of course, they were going through that. Yeah. But it was, they experienced it. And we had, if you remember, vestiges of our lives, with Harold Russell was the sailor in it who lost his his arms, and uh, it was an important part of the film. And of course, I was, you know, ten or eleven when that film was made. But then later, Dick Donner made a movie called um, 
inside moves. And in it, he brought Harold Russell. But Harold Russell won two Academy Awards for uh, for Best Years of Our Lives. He was nominated, but he had he had given so much of his anguish and, and his courage into that film. Hollywood wanted to make sure he got an award, so they gave him a special award for being a symbol. He got an Oscar. And then they opened the envelope, and he won the Supporting Actor Award, the only man ever to win two Oscars for the same performance. And so Harold, Dick brought Harold back, and uh, I had the, and, and he had become dedicated to helping the amputees. And it was, you know, really a thrill to to be part of, you know, we were able in our publicity to help what he was doing. But it's but it's true they we, we shaped it and we've we've now we've shaped the nation that wishes only to be sensationalized. I mean I think you see that in the in the election now. We've never had such a sensationalized election before. From your experience, where do you see the future of America heading just based on what is um what the what the res- what they're responding to as far as entertainment goes do you see um where do you see the next level where do you see the trajectory of america at least the the frequency of the american public happening well, at least in the next 10 years well, I'm, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to see much of it i'm 82 but uh my grandchildren will i'm fearful <laughs> uh i remember there was a movie i forget what it was called an italian movie back in the 70s it was about this Italian from the south of Italy who comes to Switzerland for a job and and uh, how he couldn't adjust. And I said to my wife, this movie is about the, what the world is going to be. The world now is going to be this new migration that every every country is going to be integrated, but it will disintegrate before it's integrated. And I think... I think how well we handle that problem, you know, you can't hold that back. Not always the wheels of progress, but the wheels of change. You can't hold back the wheels of change. We're going to have to, uh, I mean, look, we see that in, in how we're responding. I, I'm proud of the nation that's standing up to these to these legal abuses some of the states are putting in for transgender people. Uh, I had somebody I love that was trans, transgender as a, it's a trial, and why are we making life tougher for them? So it depends. We're going to have to find our humanity, our common humanity. And and so I think movies that do that, and I think Spotlight was a good example. It was a movie that was about our common humanity. I, was, I think we need, we need those movies again. What would you say would be three of the most... Uh, of all the celebrities that you've represented, what three had the biggest impact on you, and how did you impact some of these celebrities? And what um, how what careers did you think you had the biggest impact on? I, I would I'd be very reluctant to even think about that to tell you the truth because uh, I don't I don't see where I've done that. I I just tried to deal with. I just tried to let the, first of all, the industry, because the industry gives them the jobs, but sometimes you can reach the industry, the public, 
and it's a and I wanted people to see the most admirable aspects of the people that I without sugarcoating them. I mean, James Mason is a really great example because uh, he was, I mean, most most actors would you know, regard him as one of the great actors. Uh, and, and he was a rapscallion. <laughs> he was just, he was really like a horse you had to, to, uh, to break every time you got on him. But he was so much fun. And uh, I mean, he called, one night he called me, he was shooting in, in uh, Siam, I think, or and uh, and he called. It was three o'clock in the morning. I get a call, and uh, and he was just always trying to rile you. And he said, um, "I wanted to talk to you about these costumes they have for this uh, photo session I'm going to do." I said, "James, do you know what time it is?" And he said, um, "What time is it?" I said, three o'clock." He says, "Well, I wanted to catch you uh, before you go to dinner." I said, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. He said, oh, I didn't know that. I said, like hell you didn't know that. Why would you call me at home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? And then before he, I heard his laughter, I slammed the phone down. I didn't want to gratify him. I had heard his enjoyment of my satisfaction. But it was fun. You know, he was just, he was just great. And he was, well, he was courageous and... Just... Well, cool. Well, what did people like Barbara Streisand or Gene Hackman or Warren Beatty teach you about well, about in, life and the way of thinking? In uh, Starflacker, I'm actually very explicit about that because a lot of Starflackers. I'm to apologize. It's 670 pages. You're not supposed to read it over a weekend. You put it by your bed. You read five pages a night before you'll you'll mm-hmm. laugh and then you'll go to sleep. And uh, but then you by the end of it you'll know what Hollywood's really about, and um, and so in it I put what each one has taught me and and Barbara very specifically is about the truth. I mean she would uh, she, she she expects the truth and then she doesn't deal with anything but it. And um, I mean one time uh, she called a, a certain story was in the New York Times. She said how come they can't get their facts straight? I said, what is it? She said, well, they said, I'm 50. I said, well, you're 51. That doesn't do this. She said, well, why can't they get that straight? <laughs> that was her expectation. <laughs> it's a great newspaper. It should have its facts straight. Uh, G- um, Jay Leno, very specifically, I learned that uh, publicity doesn't mean anything if you don't have humility. You're in an industry that's considered incredibly competitive, not cutthroat, you're in a PR industry, and then you compile that with Hollywood, which you know one would also think is very competitive and cutthroat, yet you managed to emerge not only as being very successful, but emerge to legendary status within this industry. What have been some of the keys to your success, and why did you emerge to thrive in this area when so many other people have not even come close to your success? Okay, and in all honesty and not humility, I have to say a lot of it was good fortune. I, I mean, everything in my life, I, I consider publicity my fate. Every important thing, every great thing in my life, some of the bad things came out of publicity. But I I went to, to when I was 22, I went to Paris to get a job on 11 in the afternoon because of a strange set of circumstances, I met my wife. There wasn't 
a billion to one chance that I could ever meet this girl from such different circumstances. But what happened was um, uh, the press agent for Marilyn Monroe also handled Gary Cooper. And so he came over to the set. He was in London with Marilyn and came over to see Coop. And uh, and he comes up to me and he said, you know, I, uh, you're looking for your next job after this one? I said, yeah. He says, well, I've got one for a Tony Curtis film in Madrid. I said, great, great, I'm on. And he said, look, I need a favor. He said, my my that biggest client is David, uh, oh, my God, I'm the producer of uh, Gone with the Wind. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Uh, don't worry, I can find him right now. No, no don't worry, well, I'll, I'll make sure. We're at the, to, to Jennifer, Jennifer Jones. Um Producer for Gone with Wind? Yeah, this was good. I, I block on things. I'll know it in about a second. But pretend that, that I knew it. Was, and uh, Selznick, so it's David Selznick. So, uh, so he says, uh, David's son Jeff is in Paris, and uh, he doesn't really know much about meeting girls. And and could you go out with him and, and introduce him to some girls? Well, I was living on the left bank, and, and it was true. You had 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, you could go into any bistro and there'd be some girls in the, a lot of girls in there you just introduce yourself and you get to know the person and so I said okay have them meet me at 8 o'clock on the Boulevard Saint Michel and Monsieur Le Prince and, I'll, and then we'll meet somebody 10 o'clock he's not there he finally shows up at 10.30 and I said look at this is ridiculous is anybody who wanted to meet someone is firmly engaged in a friendship and uh and he said, no, no, no. I said, well, you come back tomorrow at 8 o'clock. And, you know, no, I may have to leave tomorrow. Okay, so we're up and down from the Seine up to the Jardin de Luxembourg, up and down the street. Every bistro, every restaurant, any, any pretty girl, any girl is is talking to somebody. I said, this is ridiculous. About 12 o'clock, these two beautiful blondes sit down at the Biarritz out, Outdoor Cafe. Uh, what was it? It, it, it wasn't closed because this was in November, and um, and these two blondes come there. And I, he says, whoa, 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 what about those? I said, no, 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 that's not the type. They're really, they're really classy, and uh, and so at one o'clock they're still there. And he says, um, well, let's go. They're waiting for somebody. So I come in, and and the second she looked up at me, I fell madly in love with her. And I was really terrified, but I said in French, you know, excuse me, uh, may I sit here? And she said, that's okay, you can speak English. And uh, she's a German girl. And so I'm not really surprised that she's letting us do this. And uh, as I'm looking for her, I see her books as Freud, while I'm a psych student, and I'm starting to get into it. And then she said, do you see those four men over there wearing dark glasses? And I said, yeah. She said, they're trying to kidnap us. Which was true. A lot of there was a lot of uh, sex, tra- human trafficking in, in Paris. That they're mostly German and Swedish girls. And I said, "Well, we can walk you home." And uh, we did. And these guys sort of went crazy, but they didn't follow us. So, if I hadn't been in publicity, <laughs> what am this man? Right. And then you married fifty-seven years, right? Yeah, coming up on fifty-eight. Wow. It's a, it's a great story. It's a great. Yeah, but, uh, but, it, but it just it led me in my life. I'm 
I know people don't have a high esteem for publicity because they all saw Tony Curtis and the Sweet Smell Success, and he was this scumbag press agent who would do anything, incriminate anybody. Press agents aren't like that. It's a it's a tough job. It's competitive. Uh, I've never felt competitive. I've never felt competitive with other press agents. I mean, I have my class. I would never take someone else's client. And Warren Cowan taught me that. And he said, you know, of course, he had the biggest agency in the business. So he said, if you steal someone else's clients, you have, you have more. They'll come after yours. Well, I just never did it. I just thought it was wrong. It would be like stealing someone else's wife. Great. And in your life, have you ever had an overwhelming gut feeling about something that has either saved you or opened up a door that you weren't aware of, like a, a sign to you. You can't explain it through science, but you just acted in a certain way because you had a gut feeling about it. Well, I've always been, I mean, one of my theories, the, the book, the Starfucker is about publicity, but it's it also gives all the rules of the game. Well, the game of publicity, what is the game of publicity? It's persuasion. You know, press agents are really persuasive people. And what does everybody have in common in life? Persuasion. You know, you want to get the girl to marry, you've got to persuade her. If you want to get the car for a lower price, you've got to persuade them. You're, everything has to do with persuasion. So all the rules of the book are about persuasion. But um, but I've always found that you don't, you never invent a rule, you recognize it. And so I was doing, there's a movie called Conversations, one of my favorite films of all time. Francis Coppola, Gene Hackman, I've handled... Gene since French Connection, uh, still handle him. There's no actor of our time who has been better in more roles. I think he is the actor of our time, along with with Brando and a few others. And um, he did this film with with Francis called The Conversation. Very tight, small film. I think one of the greatest cinematic films of all time. I would rank it with uh, with Citizen uh, Kane in terms of the cinematic genius of it. And Paramount hated the movie because they they were making Godfather Two with him. Godfather One had you know underwritten the studio, and Godfather Two was going to save it from whatever problems they would might ever have. And they didn't want him distracted, but he insisted on getting that film done. It was the best film he ever made, Conversation. He makes it in in San Francisco, and then it's going to be forgotten. So I insisted that uh, to his producer, Fred Roos, who's a friend of mine, I said, get this film to Cannes. I think it'll win the Cannes Film Festival. Paramount will have to do something with it. So they get it to Cannes, it wins the Palme d'Or. And, uh, and so it comes back. Now it's really nicely positioned to be a small film for the Oscar campaign, because this is in May, and then you bring it out in September, and it's when they get the Cannes Film Festival, and it, it'll get nominated. They they don't bring it out that year. The next year they bring it out the weekend after the Oscars when it's going to be buried. And so at the end of the year, I'm given the the job of seeing if we can do something with the Oscars for the conversation. I frankly didn't know what to do. And I'm sitting at my desk, and there's a brochure for a TV channel that was in 
was in Malibu. I lived in Malibu, and we watch it all the time because what Turner Classic Movies is now, it was the only channel that you could see old movies. And the people in the industry watch it. And I look at this, and it's a map of where it is, and it's an overlay of the Academy. All the people in the Academy live within the viewing of this thing. So I went to them, and I said, I'm going to... I want to show your phone, show the conversation a number of times on Z Channel, and I'll get you an interview with Gene Hackman to make it palatable. So we do that, and um, the Oscars come out, and Francis is nominated as Best Director for Godfather, and Godfather is nominated for Best Film, but he's nominated for Best Director for The Conversation, too, and Conversation is nominated for Best Film, and there were great movies that year. And Paramount is furious with me because they said, you know, he's going to lose the Godfather now because of this film. I said, no, everybody who loves the Godfather knows it's not going to win. They're going to vote for God, who loves the conversation. They're going to vote for Godfather. So uh, he won the, the Oscar for director and film, which he didn't on Godfather 1. The director of that, that year was, um, I think, Bob Fosse for... Um, um, all that jazz, but but that fell into my lap, and but at least I was smart enough to recognize it. So I th I think in life you have to always be open for some new wisdom that drops into your lap. Hey, and you know you think about the people that you represent. You work with actors, you work with directors, and even yourself. You're all one thing you all have in common is that. You're connecting with millions of people. Whatever way you're communicating, we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation right now, but in your profession, you're impacting millions of lives, millions of people. Is there a methodology that you've um, you know, developed in order to effectively communicate with millions of people? Are there things that you've done in publicity or techniques that you've done that you feel is good to evoke um, you know, massive uh, awareness or massive, you know, thinking among people? Well, I mean, I have a lot of rules that pertain to that. I mean, one of them is that a problem is a solution in disguise. You show me a problem, I'll show you an energy that you can use for something else. If you, it's like a coat. If you turn it inside out, it's black on the outside and it's white on the inside. Now you're wearing a white coat. And, and I've used that a, a hundred times. But one of the other rules uh, that really impresses itself upon me is not at someone else's expense. I've tried never to do something that hurt somebody else. In the book, uh, great. I, I mean, there was uh, one good example is Tony Randall was just one of the funniest people I ever met. He was, he was the wittiest, more than Peter Ustoff. And I'm telling you, I work with Michael Caine and James Mason and all these people who were great, great wits. And, and all the great comedians of the 60s I handle, and including Milton Berle. But, but Tony's by far the, the wittiest. So I go to a set one time, and um, he introduces me to his leading lady. And, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. I said, well, actually, we, we've met before. I dated you a few times. She said, oh, really? Uh, when was that? And, and I said, well, um, no, she said, uh, what was, how was that? I said, well, your name was still so-and-so, and you came here, and your very first show was on a series that I was handling, and Paul Douglas was your co-star, and I'm telling her all these things, and you were living at the studio clubs. I picked you up there. 
And she said, oh, um, when was that? And I said, well, that was 1956. And she said, I was only 12 in 1956. <laughs> and, uh, and so I immediately beat a retreat. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, there must have been somebody else. I had to identify all these different things for her. and But she walks away, and Tony watches her walk away with his arms folded, and then he turns to me and he says, Pedophile? <laughs> so I, I, I told that story to my grandson, and he said, um, he's 11, and so he laughed. And, uh, and he said, well, you have to say who it is. And I said, no, I don't. You, you, I said, do you know who she was? And she was actually quite famous as a TV star. And he said, no. And I said, but you still laughed. I said, why would I tell a story just to get a laugh and embarrass a 70-year-old woman about some, she, something she did when she was trying to formulate a career as a young woman? I said, I can't do that. This just still is just as funny. I think it's hysterical. Mr. Dick Gutman, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. My really pleasure. enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, anytime, the you book. anytime you want to talk about the golden age of Hollywood. You know what? Let me emphasize something. It's Star Flacker, F-L-A-C-E-R. Flack is a press agent. And, um, and I named it for that because I couldn't come up with a title. I mean, Warren Beatty read some of these. Gosh, it tells exactly how these people are and you have to call it the way they were i said i can't do that i handle barbara streisand i can't name my book about one of her films and their songs and uh and i was stuck for three years i was stuck it took me five years to write so my daughter a tough journalist comes home and she says uh where are you on your title oh i don't know superstars and legends she said dad that's so stupid the, the anecdotes, there's like 2,000 anecdotes in the book. She says the anecdotes are about these great stars, but the book is about a strange profession that very few under, people understand, including most of the people who are in it, which is true. And I said, so what's your idea? I said, well, anybody ever ask me what my dad is, I say he's a star flacker. That's great. He's a star flacker. Uh, I love the way this really nice ring to it. And, the book, Star Flacker, Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. It's on Amazon. It's fantastic. Highly, highly recommend. And uh, if you're really into books, you should be able to finish it in one afternoon. Only <laughs> 600. <laughs> only 670 pages long. Yeah. I think you'll really enjoy no, it. Mr. Dick it's out. a year of, of sweet dreams. Oh, it's well written. Mr. Dick Alvin, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate really having pleasure. you on. Really my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our phenomenal guest, Mr. Dick Gutman. Special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Laura Lynn, Miss Lisa Casa, and Miss Constance Stellas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace. Love and beers. Take good care and thank you so much for listening. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. 
like breakup R and B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. These lions aren't lying about this amazing offer. Right now, Randall's and Animal Planet are offering you amazing Animals of the World trading cards. For every $15 you spend at Randall's, you'll earn a free four-pack. These limited edition cards are fun to play with, swap, and learn from. There are 120 animals in all, including the king of the jungle. Collect them all while they last. Only at Randall's. 